verses 32 through 36. Jesus must have a certain way about him. Continually, the Gospels portray him as speaking above the heads of the people who are listening to him. John does this quite often, but the, the other Gospels do it as well. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have their own way of, of having Jesus speak in ways that people just don't quite get. Usually this is through the parables. For John, it is enigmatic statements that speak to a, a possible earthly interpretation that most of the Jews or the people around him take, but he really means something else. We have this in John 4 with the woman at the well talking about the the living water that he can provide for her and her assuming that he's talking about real flowing water when he means something wholly different. Or even in John chapter 3 and speaking of the new birth to Nicodemus. Nicodemus assumes that he knows what Jesus is talking about. He assumes that he knows the the very nature of what Jesus is saying, but it turns out that, that he doesn't. John is filled with these enigmatic statements by Jesus that that are hard to pin down. It's hard to know precisely what he means, and likely because he doesn't mean any one thing by them. Today we have one of those enigmatic statements. As Shrek explains in the movies, ogres have layers because they're like onions, he says. Not because they stink or because they make people cry or because they grow those weird little hairs when you leave them out in the sun, but because they have layers. This passage of Jesus, the statement that Jesus makes in here has layers. Maybe not like an onion, maybe more deliciously like a cake, uh, however you would want to look at it, but they have have layers to it. And so today what we want to do is as we go to this passage, these simple five verses, we want to see what kind of layers, what kind of, what kind of interpretations come from this particular passage as we listen to the words of Jesus. So let us read John 7, verses 32 through 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. This is the word of our God. Let us think through how Jesus' words apply first to those who are here. First to those who are here. There are a lot of ways that we can interpret these statements by Jesus, specifically in 33 and 34, the very words that he says when he says, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to see him who sent me. You will seek me, you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Well, let's not be confused. Just because something can have multiple meanings doesn't mean that it can have an infinite number of meanings. And it also doesn't mean that there aren't wrong understandings. We see this for the Jews who are there, who respond to him in a way that he cannot possibly mean. They seem to be really confused by this idea that I'm going where they cannot find me. And they they seem to, in their heads, switch the words around. So it's not... I will go where they can't find me, or I'm going where you can't follow, but rather I'm going where you won't follow. And they say, is he going to go to the dispersion, and is he going to go to the Greeks? He's going to turn from preaching to the Jews and start preaching to Gentiles, perhaps. Something that they would never have done. It would have been utterly distasteful and really 
close to blasphemy for a Jew to do something like this. The question becomes, why is this the first response that they would have to something like this? Why is this the kind of thing that they would come up with as a, as a way to interpret what Jesus had said here? It is simply because their minds can't go beyond the here and now. They are people of the here. They are people of the now. They are people who only see what is in front of their eyes and they think no further than that. They are people of this mortal coil of dirt and soil, of gold and glitter and of flesh and of bone. And they are very little in terms of spirit. They do not think of anything beyond what they can sense, taste, smell, feel, and touch. They don't feel like they need to, for this is all they have and all that they can conceive of. Friend, is this you? Is this the way that you conceive of the world? Now, because you're here, it's likely not. But I would warn you that because you're here in this world, it is likely more of who you are than you would rather like to admit. Look at your prayers. How many of your prayers are about how people will stand in eternity? How many of your prayers are for people to come to know the Lord? Or for those brothers and sisters in the Lord, how many of those prayers are focused on their maturity and their growth before God for eternity? And how many of those prayers are really just focused on health and financial and material things in and of this world? How many times are we so overly concerned with what other people think of us and finances and promotions and even things like food? If we're being honest... Most of us live here. It would make it very, very hard, given the difficulties of life, to ignore things like this. And frankly, it would be indeed disobedient to ignore these things. We are to pray about them. We are to ask God for help with them. We are to seek help in the here and in the now. But that cannot be the only emphasis of our lives, and it can't be the only way we read and interpret Jesus. There's a saying that says that people are so heavenly-minded they're of no earthly good. I have yet to see a committed Christian who is so heavenly-minded that he is no earthly good. But I have seen plenty of Christians that are so earthly-minded they have no good to do for heaven. Let us not think that Jesus is here speaking only of the present world when he mentions that where he is going, you cannot come. What he means is simply that he is performing a work for you. He is doing something for you that you can't do on your own. He's looking forward to his death. He's looking forward to his resurrection. And ultimately, he is looking forward to his ascension to be with God the Father. It is in light of this that we should understand these words, and in light of this, we should understand the great promise that exists here for us. Friend, all of those earthly concerns that we have, and they are pressing, and they are real concerns and real needs, to help us understand how we are not to dwell on those, think of your salvation in light of eternity. What, what is the suffering of this world in light of eternity? It is a blink. It is a, a flash. It is nothing compared to it. The present sufferings aren't even worth comparing to the future glory, is what Paul says. And yet we dwell on the present sufferings, and we don't dwell on the future glory. For all of eternity, we will have glory and joy and peace forever and ever and ever. In light of that, the things that we worry about here very, very much pale in comparison. Our need for finances. We trust that God will work those things out, but we don't have to worry about them. What's going to happen? You will die. 
and forever. You will have peace and joy and glory. We heard about this already this morning. Let us be reminded from the book of Matthew, which parallels Luke 12, which we heard of already. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where neither thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will not he much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. He says, you are to think first of a kingdom that is not a kingdom of this earth. It is the kingdom of heaven. Think first of that. Long for that. Have your eyes set on heaven and the earthly things will work their way out. It doesn't mean you don't get to be a good steward. It doesn't mean that you get to throw away your money and then complain about the finances that you get yourself into. But it does mean that if all of your attention is spent on the here and now, your attention is ill spent as well. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here is the amazing part of that. To an inheritance that cannot be touched by moth or rust or thieves because it is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All of your concerns about what you have here, and yet there you have an, a, a perfect inheritance which cannot be touched by thieves, which moth and rust cannot get to, which is being kept by the very power of God for you as he moves you through faith to that place where you will get to inherit it. Don't be people of the here. Don't be people of the here. You will always misunderstand so much of the world and, frankly, of what Jesus says so long as you only read him in light of the present world we live in. Jesus says, if, or Paul says, if in Jesus you have hoped in this world only, you are the most to be pitied. Listen, Jesus' great help for you is here, but it is more focused and centered in heaven. Have faith. Christ will take care of you. The things of this earth will fail, friend, but don't worry. You have an eternity to enjoy the good things of heaven. Secondly, while Jesus is speaking to those who are here, he is also speaking to those who are heroes. Speaking to those who are heroes. Jesus is saying at the very minimal here, and most literal interpretation besides the wrong one that the Jews give, is that in six months, he is going to go to his crucifixion. He will be betrayed by his fellow countrymen. They will kill him. He will be dead and he will be buried. The Spirit, the Father, and himself will work to accomplish his resurrection, and then he will ascend to God the Father. It is a mission and the task and the completion of that that God has given him. It was the very thing for which he was sent into the world, to be obedient to God even unto death and death on a cross, that he might show and be the new Adam, the new way of living in the world, one who has given us something that we can never have gained for ourselves and salvation for our sins. So Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. In other words, 
I am going to the cross, and that is not your lot. You cannot do what I have been sent to do. You cannot accomplish your salvation. You cannot die for your sins and be resurrected again. You cannot, in, a, in such a way, pay for them and think that you will ever be justified in that payment. Now, we can look to the Old Testament, and we can see examples. And Jesus is an example for us, that we are to walk forward in faithfulness. We are to walk forward doing good things and doing good works. But his role is forever unique. You can look in the Old Testament, and you can see many examples of what was going to happen. Shadows and, and presages of, of what was coming in Jesus. We, we see this in the offering of Isaac on the altar as a father gives over his son. We see it in the judges as they bring salvation and stability to a land that is filled with chaos. We see it in David with a sling and a sword, conquering the enemies of God's people. We see it in the prophets pleading with people to turn from their sins lest they bring upon themselves the wrath of God. But all of these things, every single one of them in the Old Testament, were limited in some scope. They could not affect what God needed them to affect. And so there was always a holding out for this one who had come to bring about a greater salvation, to bring about a more complete salvation. The law and the prophets look forward to a time when such a Savior would arrive to vanquish God's foes forever, to give a permanent understanding of salvation to his people, to eliminate their sins and their sinfulness forever. So when we think about Jesus' mission, we must be clear, it is utterly and totally unique. No one walks where he has walked. No one does where he has done, what he has done. But I, I would argue that there are people in this world who plainly and flatly ignore this. And they ignore this by taking out what is most unique in his ministry. And it's not the miracles, and it's not the teaching. It is the cross, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And as Christ is looking forward to that, and he's saying, that's where I'm going to go, so many people despise that. And they don't like it. It doesn't sit well with them. They don't want a God who is wrathful. They don't want a son who must give himself up for our sins. And so they eliminate it. They certainly don't like the idea of a bloody, a bloody way to deal with our sin. So they turn the cross and the whole of Jesus' life into one large example. We are to be kind because Jesus was kind. And we are to be good because Jesus is good. We are to be noble because he was noble. We are to be obedient because he was obedient. And we are to be loving because he was loving. He has laid down an example for us to live. But friends, if that's all he has done, if that is the full sum and total of what Jesus was, and Jesus is nothing more than an example for you. Just as you can be an example for others. I find it very hard, very hard to see that if Jesus' main work was simply as a moral example, how we are not heroes on the same plane of existence that Jesus Christ is. If his going to the cross and dying was an example for us, then every martyr who dies is on the same level and playing field as Jesus Christ. If all he was here to do was to show us how to be kind and good and moral, then you too can be kind and good and moral. As a matter of fact, you can outstrip everything that Jesus has done. How many diseased people did Jesus heal? I bet you a couple cases of medication to Africa would heal just as many people. I bet you we can dig more wells and provide more living water than Jesus did. 
If that's all we have in Jesus is his moral example, then all we have are people who can be heroes just like Jesus, people who can be saviors just like Jesus. But Jesus is very clear here. His work is not limited to being an example because he will go where you cannot go and he will do what you cannot do. It is something that he has accomplished for you. It is something that he has done for you. And yes, you are to look at him as an example. And don't misunderstand me. You are to be kind and you are to be good and you are to be noble and you are to be obedient. And you are to follow the example that Christ has laid down for you. But you cannot limit what Christ has done to simply being a model for how you live your life. He has accomplished great and mighty things for us. You are not a hero. There is one hero in Scripture. There is one man who is held up as the Savior of all mankind, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. There is no one else. He has tread a path that no one else can tread. And those who portray themselves as doing the work of Christ, of saving other people because they said kind words to them, or they've gone on mission trips, or they build education centers, they're nothing but false Christs. That is not the Christ that we serve. He has bled and died for our sins. He has been resurrected for our justification. He, and he has ascended to God the Father to mediate for us. He and he alone is our hero. So while Jesus is speaking to those who are here, to those who are hero, he is also speaking to those who will come later. Jesus reminds them in the beginning of verse 33 that I will be with you a little longer. Again, that is clearly a reference to the fact that six months' time, he is going to go to his death. And in a little while after that, he will be ascended to God the Father, and they won't be with him anymore. His time was indeed short. But I think that it means more than that as well. Because they won't be able to find him. There's a sense in which he is talking to the crowd and he's saying, at some point in time, you are going to realize what has happened. At some point in time, you might realize that the day of salvation has come, that the Christ has presented himself before you and you have missed the boat. Again, Luke 12, the story of that rich fool that Pastor Richard already read this morning is incredibly helpful for us. He has this bountiful harvest. And he says, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pack New barns filled with that. So I will be good for years. And, and soul, you, you just eat and you just drink until you are content. If that man thinks about God, if that man thinks about the kingdom of heaven, it is so far down the road that he can barely see the dot of it in the, in the future. There's a way of simply ignoring God and always pushing him back to later, always waiting for the next day when you aren't guaranteed. As Jesus even says there, you are a fool because this night your life is required of you. Life comes at you fast. Death comes at you faster. Cars and heart attacks and strokes, you have no guarantee, not a one of you, of what will happen to you tonight, even during the day today. Do not put off for later what you need to deal with now. Jesus opens his entire ministry in the Gospel of Luke by proclaiming that today, this is the year of the Lord's favor. I have, I have fulfilled this scripture. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2 and Isaiah, 
quoting Isaiah 49, 8, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Paul then says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Friends, you are not guaranteed another day. Not one of you is guaranteed another second of your life. Do not wait for later, for there is a little time, and you will not be able to find him again. I was reminded of two examples of this, one from Luke 12, the other from the great American institution, which is known as The Simpsons. I was in college when I saw a specific episode of The Simpsons, and it's always stuck with me. Bart, who many of you know is a disobedient sort of many, many bad words to be listed as far as his attitude and his, he's not a good example for anyone. Follow the example of Jesus. Do not follow the example of Bart, although I will be quoting him here in a second. He finds that he can be a faith healer. He wants to be a faith healer. And so there's a traveling evangelist that comes around and he goes and he talks to him. And the evangelist is trying to get Bart to turn his life around, to do good things, not in a very specifically Christian way, but just to, to make sure that you're living your life right. Bart thinks about it. And he says more honestly than most, and here I'm quoting, so you can check. I figure I'll go for a life of sin, followed by the presto changeo deathbed repentance. To which the evangelist says, wow, that's a good angle. But that's not God's angle. Why spend your life helping people instead? Then you are covered in case of sudden death. There's a good point. Good point. Bart says, listen, I will, I will follow my sin as far as I want to, but then when I know that death is right there, I'll just say those magic words that you're talking about. I will do the magic thing that you're talking about, and I will be converted in an instant. The problem is not just the issue with sudden death, which is what the evangelist thinks it's going to cover. The problem is also the fact that, friend, you don't remain static. Your heart is not a static thing. Even if you think that it's just the uttering of words, how do you know that you will even want to utter those words when you approach death? The book of Hebrews says this, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the kingdom and the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Anyone who knows and has ever planted a garden realizes that you're not a gardener, you're a weeder. As soon as you plant something that you want to grow, there are millions of other things that are going to grow that you don't want to grow. And those millions of other things suck up nutrients and water from the soil that would be going to the fruit and would be going to the vegetables, but now are not. And if you don't pluck them, if you don't get in there and pick them up, they will one day choke out the good things that you want to grow. And the book of Hebrews says, be careful. Be careful. Obtain the grace of God. You better hang on to it. Because if you don't, roots of bitterness can grow up inside of you. And because of that, you will not find the grace you want in the day you want to find it. You will be like Esau, looking for a chance to find repentance, who sold his birthright for a cup of soup. And then later, when he wanted to inherit, he found no opportunity to. 
the blessing had already been given away to his brother. And he sought it with tears, but it wasn't there for them anymore. Friend, don't think that the day of salvation is going to last your entire life. Don't think that your heart will be open and honest before God your entire life. Don't think that you get to simply repent tomorrow. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. You are not guaranteed to ever have a chance to come back and deal with the sin that is before you. If you have sin in your life, don't think, well, I will deal with this sometime. I don't want to deal with this now. You're not guaranteed any other time to deal with it. Get grace now. Obtain the grace of God. And do not fail to obtain the grace of God. Don't be like the rich fool. Don't be like Bart Simpson. Don't be like Esau. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Jesus says, I will be with you but a little time. And then I'm going where you cannot come. Friend, maybe where you cannot come is simply to a place of repentance. Be good about your sin now. Make yourself right with the Lord, for today is indeed the day of salvation. Jesus is here warning those who are here. He's warning those who are heroes. He's warning those who will come later, and he's also warning those who become haters. Who become haters. Listen, heaven is filled with one idea and one idea only. God. God is everywhere, present and perfect. It is the very climax of everything that a Christian can hope for. It is not golf courses. It is not endless Chinese buffets, as awesome as those things would be. It is the very presence of God, which is more awesome and more majestic and more perfect and more glorious than anything else that we could ever hope for or want. The very picture that is laid out for us is a picture of us dwelling with God. John, in the book of Revelation, goes into almost no more detail than that. He talks about how all of the things that are most pricey here on earth are used as nothing more than building materials in heaven because the great thing in heaven is the fact that God is there. He is the final and ultimate temple in which we dwell. He is the light in which we walk, and we bring our glory to him. The book of Revelation says this. As John has seen the temple come down and seen the new Jerusalem come down from heaven, he says in Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The emphasis here is not just that God is present there, but that the Trinitarian God is present there. The Lamb and the Father are there present as light and as temple, as everything that you have in that place. It is them. So if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, heaven is not for you. That's it. There is nothing else. If you don't love him more than you love the world, heaven is not the place for you. You will never enjoy it there. It will not be heaven for you. It would be nothing more than hell. No doubt there will be many in this life who don't listen to the Son. They are greedy for power. They love their sin. They are fools who think that there is no God who will judge them 
or fools who think that there might be a God, but there's no God who would judge them. They will make God in a number of different forms, a number of different fashions, but they are certain to be excused from their own sins, not because the Son has paid for their sin, but because God doesn't care about it all that much. They might not mind the idea of a God, but they certainly hate the idea of a Son of God who has to give his life and die for their sins and demands their obedience for their life. They hate the idea of a son because the son is exclusive. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. They hate the son because the son is powerful. They hate the son because he is demanding. They hate the son because he demands to be the center of all your heart and your affection, and he demands your trust and your obedience. These things stand so against so much of what our culture and indeed every culture wants. Our culture wants inclusivity, not because they want everybody to get along, but because they want to be included. It's not because they care about exclusion, but they want themselves to be included. They want power, not in somebody else, but in themselves. They want to demand, not because they have authority, but because they want the authority. They want to worship whatever they want to worship. Whatever is in the desire of their hearts, that's what they want to be able to do, that's what they want to be able to act on, that's what they want to lift up high and say, this is good and righteous. Because of that, they hate the Son. So Jesus has some of the best news that they're ever going to hear. You don't have to worry about it. You don't get to be around me forever. When Jesus says, I am going where you cannot come, this is certainly a warning to the Jews who stand there ready to judge him. It is the very fact that the people have sent, the authorities have sent people to arrest Jesus that makes him say the things that he's saying here. The very fact that the authorities are clearly rejecting him and in six months' time will get precisely what they want when they crucify him is the very reason why Jesus is saying, don't worry, your hatred of me will be found out in your life and you don't ever have to be by me. I will be with my Father in heaven because I am going where he is. But you don't need to worry about that. You will not be there. I'm not C.S. Lewis thinking that hell is locked from the inside. But I am C.S. Lewis in saying that God will give many people precisely what they want. An existence without God, an existence without the Son. Without God, who is the very source of life, they will know only death, but it will be the worst kind of death. It will be death without life. They will feel the pain of death, but they will never experience the finality of it. They will feel the emptiness and the hopelessness of death without ever ever knowing it without end. They will be endlessly dying with no peace, with no hope, with no savior, with no escape. They will not have God. They will not have the comfort of a son who has bled for them, who has died for them, who has been resurrected for them, and who mediates for them. They will know only eternal death. Friend, you need to understand when we talk about eternal death, these are not exaggerations that we use to scare people into believing in Christ. I have no problem scaring people into believing in Christ. That's perfectly fine. I think Jesus talks the way he talks more of hell than any other person in the Bible does, 
Jesus speak of the eternal damnation that awaits those who reject him. I think he does that out of the very hope that that will waken some people up to move them to salvation. I've got no problem with that. But these are not just exaggerations that we are using to move people in that direction. They are quite figurative in the fact that they will never actually get to the depth of the depravity and the hatred and the ugliness that hell will be for people. It will be worse than anything that you can possibly imagine going on in your head. And all of that primarily because Jesus isn't there. This end is reserved for those who hate the Son. It is reserved for those who fight against the Son, who lift themselves up over against the Son, who would stand against the very nature of the proclamation of the gospel, which lifts up Jesus Christ as high and mighty and glorious and indeed as God himself. Friend, it is my sincere hope that you aren't any of these groups, that you don't have your mind fixated on this world that indeed you don't have your mind fixated on simply coming to Jesus in the future and putting off what needs to be done today. That you are not those who seek Jesus only as a moral example of how you can live a better life. And that you are not those who hate the Son, even while outwardly professing him. For every warning here, there is good news. There is good news because Jesus is doing something for you. He is reclaiming you from your sin. He is showing himself victorious over devil, over all of the devils, over the devil. He is showing himself victorious over sin and over death. He is showing himself all of these things. For in a while, he is going to walk a path that no one will be able to walk. He is going to experience a death that no one else could ever experience, and he will be lifted from that grave in a way that no one else will ever truly know. For those who love him, for those who believe in him, for those who trust in him, for this group, there are great promises here. There are promises of a better home that look better than this world. And all the glittering gold and all the beauty of this world will be paled in comparison to what God is going to reveal to us. It is a promise of a better hero. Not one who will give you a good example and who will feed your belly and who can save your life with medical technology, but of one who can raise you from the dead. It is a promise of a better future, one filled with hope and joy and peace and prosperity and the promise of a better love. Not the love of the things of the world, but the love of a God who is righteous and perfect in holiness and majesty and in beauty. This promise of a Jesus who, although he must leave, promises that he does leave for our good. He promises that he is holding a place for us that his going away is better for us because he can mediate for us. And what's more, going away from us is better for us because he and the Father can then send the Spirit to us, to dwell in us. John 14, 3, there's a promise of Jesus where he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. The same Christ who said, I am going and you cannot follow me. You will seek after me, but you won't see where I am. He says to those who believe in him, I am going, but I will come and I will take you to me, that you will dwell with me forever. Friends, trust in this Jesus. He has done great and mighty things for you. 
and will one day bring you to himself that you might dwell with him forever so that you can be with him and be with the Father who loves you through him, knowing only peace and prosperity forever. Do not put off for tomorrow what should be done today. Do not trust vainly in your own morality. Do not hope for the world to be the best place for you. But put all your trust in Jesus Christ. Know him, know salvation, and know the goodness of a God who loves you with an infinite love through his son, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you will help us today to love your son, Jesus Christ. We have confessed that he is indeed glorious and marvelous. Let us see that truly for ourselves. We all too often love the things of the world and they blind us to his glory and beauty, but let us see afresh today the marvel of who Jesus is, that we might one day dwell with him. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.